Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. For this show, I have five movies to review for you, one of which is brand new, just released in theaters this past weekend, uh, the weekend being August 19th, 2022. And the rest of the movies are ones that have come out within the last month or so, but I didn't get to review them until now because I only have so much time on this show. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Beast. This is a movie that was subject to be released in theaters initially on August 25th, but it was actually released a week early on August 19th. And it's a good thing, too, because it's one of the only new movies to come out exclusively in theaters this past weekend. Beast stars Idris Elba and is directed by Balthazar Kormakur, which is an epic name. Yeah, you don't even have to have a career right there. You just have to go to parties, say your name is Balthazar Komakur, and you will instantly start a conversation because that is a dynamic name. You can just start a complete five to ten minute conversation based on how your parents decided to name you Balthazar. But in all seriousness, Balthazar Komakur is an Icelandic director, and he has directed many movies from the late 90s to the present. He's probably best known amongst American audiences for having directed Two Guns, which is a movie that starred Denzel Washington and Mark Wahlberg. He also directed a movie called Everest. He also produced the movie. That came out in 2015, and it was based directly on the story of Into Thin Air, which was a best-selling nonfiction book that was released in the late 90s, shortly after an expedition uh, traveled to the top of Mount Everest. But he is in full popcorn movie mode with this movie, Beast. And Beast is a movie about a father who happens to be a doctor named Dr. Nate Samuels, who's played by Idris Elba, who is a recently widowed husband and father who returns to South Africa with his two daughters, Meredith, an aspiring photographer, played by Ayana Haley, and his younger daughter, Nora, played by Leah Sava Jeffries. So they return to South Africa, and they don't explore big cities like Cape Town or Johannesburg, although they do stop there first on their way to a game reserve that is in rural South Africa that is managed by an old family friend and fellow wildlife biologist named Martin Battles, who's played by South African native Sharato Copley, who's been in many films, but he's probably best known for his starring role in District 9, but he's been in many other films uh, since then. But this is the first film he's been in in a while, probably since the movie Chappie, that actually takes place in South Africa. But their trip back to South Africa, where Dr. Nate Samuels first met their wife, is hindered when a ferocious wild lion that escaped from years of torture by poachers begins attacking them and killing anyone in its path. So this movie having Idris Elba in it um, is, made me sort of expect it to be a bit of a smarter film 
than it ultimately is. Beast is a thrilling film, and it looks great on the big screen, which is why I think it was appropriate for it to be released solely in theaters. But then again, I wouldn't have been against it being released also on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, or all those other streaming services. But I expected it to be a bit smarter, because... First of all, it's it's basically just Jaws if Jaws were a lion instead of a shark. And the movie doesn't really take the premise any further. However, with that said, the movie is very thrilling. And that lion who is attacking these people and everything in its path is definitely scary. So I think there are some palpable moments of tension within the film. I also really liked the climax of the movie when Idris Elba actually takes the lion on himself. Although it does sound kind of cheesy when I describe it, but if you actually see it for yourself and actually see how the story resolves itself, and I won't give that away, it actually is a very satisfying ending. Also, kudos to Idris Elba for being in a movie that has cats, because the last time he was in a movie with cats... That movie sucked really hard. Although, it wasn't Idris Elba's fault that the movie Cats was so bad. He was just kind of along for the ride. And he wasn't exactly bad in the movie Cats. What was bad in the movie was just about everything else except maybe some of the actors. But he's in a redeemable movie here about Cats, which even though this is a movie about a killer cat, it is actually a lot less scary than the movie Cats if you can believe it. But I liked Beast for what it was. I think it was one of those good popcorn movies. I think especially with an intelligent actor like Idris Elba and also some of the family dynamics that go on in this movie between him and his two daughters, I think they could have raised the intelligence level a little bit more in this film. But I still enjoyed it for what it was, but Beast gets my rating of a checkout because it is very thrilling, but I think once it's man versus beast, it doesn't really elevate itself further than that in in terms of the story. And I really actually kind of wish that it did. And the climax is is good, but the resolution of it is a bit quick. It's sort of one and done, so to speak. And I wanted to see a little bit more after that. But with that said, people came to see a movie about a wild lion, and that's exactly what they're going to get. And to this movie's credit, the CGI on the lion in this film looks pretty realistic, considering that it's a movie about a... Uh, killer lion. And I I will say that uh, Idris Elba was smart, not only in getting a, in a better movie about killer cats, but also being in one that has much better CGI than the movie cats. So for that reason, I give that movie some very passable credit. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. 
The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. And this is a movie that came out in theaters nationwide on August 5th, 2022. So I'm a little bit late to this movie, but the reason I'm late to it is because there were three brand new films to come out on August 5th. And I saw two of them that I just didn't have time to fit Bodies, Bodies, Bodies in until now. It has a pretty impressive cast of young actors, and it is directed by Helena Rain, who is a Dutch director who has actually directed a number of films that American audiences would probably know. Um, there's the movie Instinct that came out in 2019. It was big on the independent circuit, and she's been acting uh, for longer than she's been directing. In fact, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies is her second feature film to be released, but she shows a lot of promise as a director and as a storyteller. And the movie focuses on two particular women here. There is a woman by the name of B, who is a working-class young woman from Eastern Europe. What exact country from Eastern Europe, the movie doesn't say, but she has a thick accent that resembles somebody from Russia, Belarus, or one of those uh, former Soviet countries. She's played by Maria Bakalova, and she travels with her wealthy lesbian girlfriend, Sophie, who's played by Amanda Stenberg, to a hurricane party at a mansion owned by the family of Sophie's childhood friend, David, who is played by former Saturday Night Live uh, alum, Pete Davidson. And upon arrival, B is introduced to the other guests, including David. Um, there, there are also some other people here as well, but what they all have in common is not only are they all friends, but they all come from upper middle class to wealthy families. And apparently this hurricane party is something that is a thing. And I heard about hurricane parties for the first time, not from this movie, but actually from a movie uh, from a, a show that aired on MTV, one of those reality shows that was called Florabama Shore. It was just a preview that I caught one time, and apparently these kids from somewhere between uh, somewhere on the border between Alabama and Florida, when a hurricane is coming, they hunkered down, they board up the windows, and they basically get drunk, which is pretty much what the people in this movie do as well. The only difference is that they, after they start drinking, um, using drugs and dancing, they begin to play a game called Bodies, 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 which is a murder in the dark style game. And at first the game goes poorly until one of the people in this mansion uh, actually ends up dead. So it goes from being one of these party-type movies to a whodunit. And unfortunately, unlike most other whodunits that have been put on film, there is no smart detective like Sherlock Holmes or Hercule Poirot to solve the case here. So these drunken stoned Gen Z kids are trying to figure out who murdered their friend and why, while also trying to, while also being suspicious of one another. And I think the best parts of this movie actually are the murders, not the, the fact necessarily that certain characters get murdered. And I didn't want to 
uh, see them in the first place. It's, it's not like that, but just how they're carried out and why they're carried out. And the movie does keep you guessing. As a matter of fact, I loved the acting performances of just about everyone in this cast who is female. I did think, unfortunately, that the male cast members were not quite up to par with acting. And I expected that same with uh, Pete Davidson, because Pete Davidson, in my opinion, is probably one of the most overrated cast members Saturday Night Live has ever had. The reason you keep hearing about him so much is more from being in the gossip papers, especially with his recent relationship with Kim Kardashian that just ended, rather than his acting or comedic talent. I think he's a decent comedian, but I didn't think he brought a lot to SNL, which is why when he left this past um, last few months... I wasn't uh, bummed at all. In fact, I was just waiting for more talented people to join SNL's cast. But I do actually think from the few movies in which I've seen Pete Davidson, he does step up his game. I just think he could have stepped it up a bit more in this movie. First of all, we're told that Sophie and David are best friends from childhood, but they rarely spend any screen time together and they don't really get as chummy as you might expect old friends to get, at least from my point of view. There's also another part where Pete Davidson's character, David, is supposed to be a jerk and he does um, get on his uh, girlfriend the way you think a jerk would, but for some reason, I wasn't convinced of his being a jerk in this film. It just seemed very forced from his performance. And last but not least, somebody does get killed. Taking words on films rule, self-imposed rule about no spoilers, I'm not going to tell you who gets killed, and I'm not going to tell you how they get killed. Although the way the first murder happens is quite creative and one that I did not see coming. But there is a part where the person who owns the mansion, who is not in this... uh, hurricane party actually returns home sees one of the dead bodies and goes up to the people who are alive and just very flatly says what happened and that of course just was not a you had one line that this character did i'm not going to tell you who it is i'm not going to tell you who plays him but when i saw this actor just kind of flatly go what happened after seeing a person dead in his home, I just thought that is not the way that I would react if I returned home and saw one dead body, let alone how many dead people end up in this film. So the male actors, for many other reasons, just weren't up to par, but the female actors absolutely mesmerized me. And Amanda Stenberg is one of those actresses who is not yet a household name, but I would imagine that in two to three years, she will be. She will be in one of those popcorn movies. She'll probably be elevating her role from what from how it was written, and people will eventually know her, probably know her as well as Halle Berry, for example. But Uh, I was very impressed by her. I also liked the other um, women who acted in the film. Maria Bakalova played very well alongside Amanda Stenberg, and the two of them had amazing chemistry, both during their love scenes and also when they were trying to survive. Also some very impressive performances by Rachel Sennett, Chase Sweet Wonders, and 
Mihaela Harold. I hope I pronounced that first name correctly. And also the way that the murders play out, as well as the cinematography of this film, was very impressive. So it's a very good sophomore effort from director Helena Rain. And I... But as I said, not all actors in this film were created equal and gave as equal performances. The women did great, the men did not, which is why I give Bodies, Bodies, Bodies probably my rating of a very high checkout. The reason it's not a knockout is because they could have hired better male actors to be in this film, and they didn't really... um, elevate their acting level, not to mention that they didn't have the right chemistry with some of the women in this film that they probably should have had. So that was missing. But otherwise, the women brought their A-game, the cinematographer brought their A-game, and it was a very good whodunit kind of movie. It just, the, the men really didn't do any benefits for this film. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Emily the Criminal. This is a film that was released in theaters nationwide on August 12th, 2022. And the reason I didn't review it for last week's show was because of time. But I finally got a chance to catch it at one of actually my favorite theater in Nashville, Tennessee, the Belcourt Theater, which reminds me of my two favorite theaters in Boston, the Coolidge Corner Theater and the Brattle Theater, uh, which I miss very much from our fair city. But of course, going to uh, Belcourt is kind of like being at uh, Coolidge Corner. It's certainly up, up to snuff, but Emily the Criminal is actually probably, you could consider it, Aubrey Plaza's dramatic debut. She's certainly been in a lot of comedies, both in theaters and on TV, but this is her first role in a dramatic film, at least in the lead role from what I remember. It is actually an original film written and directed by John Patton Ford, and his repertoire as a director is actually quite short. He directed a short film in 2010 called Patrol, and Emily the Criminal is his feature film directorial debut. So for a debut, this is actually a very impressive film. It is about a girl by the name of, or I should say a woman by the name of Emily, who of course is played by Aubrey Plaza, who is down on her luck and saddled with debt. She went to a prestigious art school and unlike her best friend, Liz, who's played by Megalyn Echikonwoke, I hope I pronounced that name correctly. Uh, she doesn't have um, a steady job. She is saddled with debt from the same art school where she that she attended with Liz, and she is also she also has a criminal record, a minor criminal record of misdemeanors, which isn't terrible. It's not like she served time in prison, but it still looks bad on her permanent record. But 
Emily finds herself getting involved in a credit card scam that pulls her into the criminal underworld of Los Angeles, ultimately leading to deadly consequences. And there are decisions that Aubrey Plaza's character, Emily, makes that are really bad, both when she is interviewing for uh, legitimate positions and also when she starts to get into this criminal underworld, especially with her boss and mentor, Youssef, who's played by Theo Rossi. And Youssef tells her from the very beginning that what she's doing is illegal, and if she has a problem with that, she can leave. And she and he doesn't say it like other characters who are pulling off criminal enterprises who are whose hearts are painted black would say. He's very charismatic. And, of course, Emily goes with the charisma as opposed to the natural common sense. And from there, it is quite an adventure as she begins to pull off this credit card fraud, which involves her taking a card with a stolen credit card number, going into electronic stores, buying these flat screen 4K TVs, and then selling them on Craigslist, which is kind of the not so much black market as much as it is the gray market, but just making money from that, selling them at very dirt cheap prices. And are there consequences to her actions? There certainly are, but I'm not going to tell you exactly what those consequences are. But, and you're not exactly, or there may be some people who watch this film and are rooting for Emily. And it's one of those, for me, conflicted ways of viewing this film where I kind of wanted to root for Emily as she's pulling these cons off. But at the same time, what she's doing, taking credit card information from innocent victims and also making (laughs) illegitimate money is just flat out wrong. But at the same time, seeing her get away with it just in the context of this film is thrilling and you want to see whether or not she'll pull it off. And for that matter, um, you also want to see what happens if she does not succeed with it. So Emily, the criminal is one of the more impressive action drama films that I've seen so far this year. It does, for lack of a better term, keep you on the edge of your seat And Aubrey Plaza does an amazing job playing Emily, not to mention she has some great scenes, both with uh, the character of Youssef and also with her college friend Liz, who is making a good living and a name for herself using her art major uh, in Los Angeles and using it very impressively. That would probably be the way to go for any career counselor you could possibly ask. And even though Emily has a great connection with Liz and Liz can hook her up with a legitimate job, there are scenes, including one with uh, Gina Gershon, who gets um, close to top billing in this movie, uh, and probably for good reason because her scene is quite memorable, but there are ways in which Emily sort of subverts what's expected of her having a college education like she does. And in a very, I think, particularly realistic way. So I was very impressed with Emily the Criminal. It's a movie that I probably could see again, and I probably take my 
either my friends to see it or tell them about it, which is why Emily the Criminal gets my rating of a knockout. I'm not exactly sure how legitimate it is in terms of being realistic, but considering that credit card fraud happens all the time, I've been a victim of credit card fraud myself. In other words, people have stolen my uh, credit card number, and fortunately the bank caught it before any major damage happens, but I am definitely not alone in that respect, and I do not respect anybody who takes part in it. But with that said, it does make a killer movie, and Emily the Criminal is certainly no exception to watching real, watching bad people do bad things, but not necessarily being against the movie when you see them do it. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Day Shift. This is a film that is a Netflix original and can only be viewed on Netflix, although I would not be against seeing this movie in theaters. It's the latest film starring Jamie Foxx, and it it marks the directorial debut of J.J. Perry, who has several acting and stunt credits to his name as he is a martial artist. But this is a very impressive directorial debut, similar to Emily the Criminal, but on a much more um, commercial level. So this is a movie about a hardworking blue-collar dad whose name is Bud Jablonski, and he's played by Jamie Foxx. He's blue-collar because he has the facade of being a pool cleaner, but what he actually does during the day is kill vampires. And he just wants to provide a good life for his quick-witted 10-year-old daughter and also his wife from whom he's separated, whose name is Jocelyn, who's played by Megan Good. And Megan Good and Jamie Foxx make a very good pair. But his mundane San Fernando Valley pool cleaning job, as I said, is a front for his real source of income, which is hunting and killing vampires. And Day Shift is a movie that kind of rewrites the rules of vampires. For instance, you're told not only through books by the likes of Bram Stoker and others, as well as movies like Dracula and the Twilight series, that the two main ways of killing vampires are exposing them to sunlight and also stabbing them in the heart with a wooden stake. Well, in this movie, sunlight is still a detriment to vampires, but the wooden stakes don't seem to do the trick because the guns that Jamie Foxx 
as well as his other independent contractors using this film, seem to do the trick for vampires. They don't exactly kill them right on the spot, but they do stun them. But there are actually other, more creative ways to kill vampires upon which this movie extrapolates. And the movie does kind of get into that sort of buddy cop trope when Bud uh, Jablonski, Jamie Foxx's character, teams up with a bookworm by the bookworm by the name of Seth, who's played by Dave Franco, who knows all the rules about vampire hunting, but does not have the ground zero experience that Bud has. But they're taken along for the ride as Bud shows Seth the ropes of destroying these vampires that during the day, of course, live in boarded up houses. And I went into this film, I started watching the film not knowing that it was a vampire-killing movie. Although I am kind of spoiling that for you. But the reason I bring it up now is because, first, uh, Jamie Foxx's character is cleaning a pool, but then he goes inside the house, and then an old lady comes out, and he just straight up takes out a gun and shoots her right in the chest. And at first, I thought to myself, why the hell would he do that? Until the old lady actually gets right up from being shot in the chest and her bullet wound immediately heals. And then you see her really dark side. That is, she is uh, also a vampire. But I thought that the movie had a great villain in here by the name of Audrey San Fernando, who does not have the most original name because she does real estate in the San Fernando Valley, but she's played by an actress. I did not uh, actually know before uh, by the name of Carla Souza. And she is a real estate agent who is also a vampire. And she actually gets out of her house during uh, the day, but how she's able to survive the sun is in a very clever and creative way. And also, when she gets really evil and starts to get into Bud Jablonski's personal life, that's when the movie really takes off. And also, there's another supporting performance here by a fellow vampire killer by the name of Big John Elliott, who's who's a bit more of a vigilante, maybe even more of a maverick than Bud Jablonski. And he's played, actually, by Snoop Dogg. And Snoop Dogg, I think for a guy who is not trained as an actor, has really chosen his roles very carefully. For example, he was really good and surprisingly funny in the movie Starsky and Hutch. Here, he's kind of funny in that deadpan sort of way, but also the scenes where he kills vampires and also teams up with Jamie Foxx are really inspired. So I was very impressed by Day Shift, which is why Dave Sh- Day Shift excuse me, gets my rating of a knockout. It's a film that is very action-packed, very funny, and also very thrilling as well. It is a Netflix original, but I would not have been against seeing this movie on the big screen. I thought it had amazing special effects. And for a year that has brought us sort of ho-hum action films, especially those starring Liam Neeson, and also one really bad vampire movie in the form of Morpheus starring Jared Leto, this is a film that is probably one of the best action films of the year and undoubtedly the best vampire movie 
of the year. So Day Shift is certainly well worth it, and it would probably be a good film to see around Halloween as well. But considering that it takes place in the San Fernando Valley where it's always sunny, it's really good to watch this film any time of year. But I really enjoy just about everything in it. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song. This is a film that is a documentary that is actually based on Alan Light's 2012 book, The Holy or the Broken. It's not just a documentary about Leonard Cohen, even though it actually does delve deep into Leonard Cohen's uh past and his biography, but it is also primarily about his song that was not initially a hit when it came out in 1984, but gradually it developed a following, particularly when it uh, was given the cover version treatment by several artists. It was uh, The film, Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song, is directed by Daniel Geller and Dana Goldfine, and the two of them have been producing and being the cinematographer on several films. They've directed other feature documentaries, including Isadora Duncan, Movement from the Soul, Frosh, Nine Months in a Freshman Dorm, which is a film that came out in 1994, which I actually kind of like to see because I didn't make it to college in the 90s. I was still in grade school and junior high and a little bit of high school, but I'd still kind of like to see that. And also his most, their most recent documentaries include The Galapagos Affair, Satan Came to Eden, which is an amazing name already. That's got me hooked. And also Something Ventured, which were from the movie uh, were from the years 2013 and 2011 respectively. But Hallelujah Leonard Cohen a Journey of Song is a film that might be on streaming or if it isn't now it probably will be, but I saw this movie at the Belcourt Theater, which as I said earlier in the show is my favorite theater here in the great city of Nashville. But Having not known very much about the song Hallelujah and knowing even less about Leonard Cohen, I was impressed by this film. I knew a lot about the cover songs of Hallelujah, or at least I've heard them before. And just to give you a little bit of context, Hallelujah is a song that Leonard Cohen wrote, and he wrote it with a certain number of verses, but as... The song has been covered by other artists. The verses have been rearranged. Sometimes they've been rewritten. And Hallelujah is one of those songs that is really open to interpretation based on who's singing it and how the listener can extrapolate the lyrics as they are. And 
Hallelujah is a fascinating song for that reason because the beauty of the song is really in the ears of the beholder. But I haven't met a single person who doesn't like the song. There are times where the song has been played at weddings, but there are certain lyrics in the song that might not make it particularly fitting for a wedding. For example, one of my uncles actually got married for the second time, and that was the first dance to his then-wife. And the reason I say then-wife is because seven years after their wedding, they actually got divorced. And and there are some people in my family who thought that Hallelujah probably did not set their marriage on the right foot. I'm not exactly one to say about that. There are other reasons why they got divorced, but I won't get into that right now. But I did actually like the documentary for very detailing the progression and, and the increasing popularity of the song, especially in the earlier part of this decade. Because Hallelujah, the song was originally written and performed by Leonard Cohen, Eventually, Bob Dylan found out about the song and played it in some of his live sets. And then John Cale recorded what a lot of people consider the definitive version of the song in 1991. It was later brought to popularity by Jeff Buckley when he recorded it for his only album in 1994. And a little while after Jeff Buckley recorded his debut album, he died, which made his recording of Hallelujah all the more poignant. But it increased even more in popularity when John Cale's version was used in the movie Shrek in 2001, which was honestly, just to clear the air here, that was where I first heard the song. I'd like to say that, yeah, I've I've known Bob Dylan's entire um, musical repertoire and could tell you all about his songs. I can't. (laughs) I'm a movie critic, not a music critic. But I... First heard John Cale's version in Shrek, and apparently I wasn't the only one. In addition to that, Rufus Wainwright actually recorded a version for Shrek by the request of the people who were making Shrek. And because of contractual obligations, Rufus Wainwright's version was not included in the movie Shrek, but it was added to the soundtrack, and the soundtrack went double platinum. So Rufus Wainwright's career also took off because of that. And since then, there have been noteworthy covers by a a number of artists, including but not limited to Katie Lang, Alexandra Burke, Pentatonix, and Yolanda Adams, who sang her version of Hallelujah for a special concert to commemorate the deaths of the the Americans who died from COVID-19. And it was a very poignant version that Yolanda Adams Uh, sang as well. Yolanda Adams was mentioned in this film, Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey of Song. What I was very surprised to not see was Kate McKinnon's version that she played on the cold open of Saturday Night Live on November 12th, 2016. Now, Kate McKinnon played the song on the piano and sang it in character as Hillary Clinton. And the reason that she did this was for two reasons. First of all, because Leonard Cohen died five days before that episode of SNL. And secondly, 
because Hillary Clinton lost Donald Trump in the 2016 U.S. presidential election when just about everyone, including many Republicans, thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win the election. And it ended up being a more somber cold opening than the first cold open of Saturday Night Live back in 2001 that featured then-not-insane Rudy Giuliani and Paul Simon. And it really says something when the cold open for the aftermath of the 2016 U.S. presidential election was more somber than the first episode of SNL after 9-11. But that's how a lot of us were feeling back on in early November 2016. We were wondering what the hell happened. So the reason I I got into so much detail about that cold open is because they could have mentioned that in the documentary, but they didn't. They did mention that Leonard Cohen died. After all, they did reveal a lot of information about him. They also revealed a lot of covers of Hallelujah as of recent, including Yolanda Adams cover, but I'm not going to hold that against the documentary, not including that SNL cold open with Kate McKinnon. They should have included it, but it's not for me to take away from this documentary for not including that. What they did include was actually very impressive. And I learned a lot from it, which is why hallelujah Leonard Cohen, a journey, a song gets my rating of a knockout. It gives you almost everything else you need to know about the song Hallelujah, why it's relevant, and also why it's an important song, particularly amongst American music. It also, for me, gave me a greater appreciation of Leonard Cohen himself, because Leonard Cohen wrote and recorded the song when he was 50. He got into the music business very late. He he did not become a songwriter until he was 32 years old. And it took him a very, very, very long time for him to be recognized. Fortunately, and I'm very thankful for this, Leonard Cohen did get the recognition that he deserved when he was alive. It took him a very long time to do it. But when you have great singer-songwriters like Bob Dylan, Jeff Buckley, and uh, John Cale covering your song, that's already quite a compliment. But fortunately, this movie solidifies Leonard Cohen's importance in the realm of American music, and I respect it for that. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for the show, it's now time for me to get into what's coming up next. What's coming up next is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters and on streaming, depending if I have time, for the week of August 22nd through August 26th, 2022. 
And I'm going to start with movies that are subject to being released in theaters for that weekend. And I'm starting with what could be the biggest film of next weekend. And it is called The Invitation. The Invitation is a horror thriller about a young woman who is courted and swept off her feet only to realize a gothic conspiracy is afoot. And that is all I can tell you about this film. It is directed by Jessica M. Thompson, who co-wrote the screenplay along with Blair Butler. And there aren't very many actors who I know from this movie. The lead actress is an actress by the name of Natalie Emmanuel, although she spells her name N-A-T-H-A-L-I-E, so I'm not sure if that's pronounced Natalie or Nathalie. But she is a British actress who has been in Game of Thrones. She's been in one of the... She's actually been in two of the Fast and Furious movies, at least, as a character by the name of Ramsey. And she is a lovely young actress, but I have not seen her in many films. But The Invitation is a movie that I probably will see, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another film that is subject to being released in theaters is a film that's called 3,000 Years of Longing. Unlike The Invitation, this movie has some noteworthy actors in it and is also directed by George Miller, who brought us several films, including Mad Max Fury Road. This movie co-stars Idris Elba. So Idris Elba has two films starring or co-starring him that that came out in consecutive weekends. That is quite impressive, but at the same time, there are probably a lot of films, tons of films that are being held back Because of the pandemic. I think films that were filmed in 2020 or 2021 are being held back. And we might not see the bulk of them until probably the end of 2023. Or at least that's what I'm guessing. But the the important thing is that they are coming out um, in a reasonable manner. But this movie, uh, 3,000 Years of Longing is about a lonely scholar on a trip to Istanbul, Turkey, who discovers a jinn who offers her three wishes in exchange for his freedom. The jinn is played by Idris Elba, and the lonely scholar is played by Tilda Swinton. And her character's name is Alethea, which is another epic name. And Idris Elba is just known as the jinn. So, considering that this movie stars Idris Elba, it is probably guaranteed to be a weird movie because those are the movies to which Tilda Swinton is most attracted. The movie, as I said, is directed by George Miller, who is an Australian actor, or rather, Australian director, who has brought us not only Mad Max Fury Road, but also some of the earlier Mad Max movies starring Mel Gibson, including Mad Max from 1979, The Road Warrior from 1981, and Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, which had Mel Gibson acting alongside Tina Turner. He also directed one of the segments of The Twilight Zone, the movie, probably one of the best segments of that film, which is Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, which starred John Lithgow, who actually turned in a better performance, believe it or not, than William Shatner did in the original Twilight Zone. But yeah, George Miller has directed a number of other um, (laughs) varied films. He directed Babe Pig in the City. He directed both Happy Feet movies. And Happy Feet won the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature over Disney Pixar's Cars 
as well as the movie about the the killer haunted house that comes to life. I can't remember the name of that film right now because I'm going off the top of my head. But 3,000 Years of Longing is a film that I probably will see, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another film that is subject to being released in theaters on August 26th is a movie that's called The Good Boss. And this is a film that is a comedy and drama. It's directed by Fernando Leon de Aranoa. And it is a movie about uh, a man who is the owner of an industrial scales manufacturing business who, awaiting a visit by a committee that could give his company an award for excellent, tries to resolve any problems from his workers in enough time. The movie stars Javier Bardem. He's probably the best-known actor in this film, along, um, particularly among um, Western audiences. But the movie also co-stars Manola Solo, Almudena Amor, and Oscar de la Fuente, which probably means that this film is in Spanish, not necessarily in English. As it turns out, Fernando Leon de Aranoa, the director, is a native of Spain, just like Javier Bardem is. And amongst the other films that he has directed have been uh, movies like Loving Pablo, A Perfect Day, and Amador. But those are films that I have not seen. So if this movie is coming out in a theater near me, which it might come out at the Belcourt Theater... I might see it, but I'm not guaranteeing that I will. I'm more likely to see The Invitation or 3,000 Years of Longing. But if I do see that film, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. So those are the films that are coming out for the weekend of August 26th, 2022. There are some interesting films that are coming out or are subject to be released on September 2nd, 2022, which is Labor Day weekend. And I'm very curious about these films based on their titles. But I'm not going to get into them right now because I'm going to save that for next week. But there's one title of one of these movies that makes me laugh. What is the title of that movie? Well, stay tuned for next week and I'll be sure to tell you. But while I have time, I might as well get into the movies that are subject to being released on Netflix on the week of... August 22nd through August 26th. On Sunday, August 21st, which is not quite the um, delineation that I gave you, there's a movie that is going to be released on Netflix that is not a Netflix original, but it's not a film that I have heard of either. And it might be a new film, and it's called A Cowgirl's Song. And this is a film that was made in 2022, but it is making its first appearance on Netflix, but it is not a... Netflix original. It's a movie that is a drama as well as a musical, and it's about an aspiring teen singer who goes to live with her grandmother, once a country music legend, which I'm sure my fellow residents of Nashville, particularly those who live more downtown, will love. But her grandmother has fallen on hard times after the death of her husband five years earlier. The movie stars Cheryl Ladd, that's a, movie, that's a name I have not heard in quite some time, as Aaron Mays, who is probably the grandmother, Rachel Cannon as her daughter Candace Mays, and Savannah Lee May as Haley Mays, who is the titular uh, teenager, who is the aspiring songwriter, as well as an actress by the name of Darcy Lynn Farmer, who plays Haley's younger sister, Brooke. 
Now, Darcy Lynn Farmer is less known for her acting skills as much as her ventriloquist skills. As a matter of fact, she earned the coveted golden buzzer when she was on America's Got Talent. And I think it was Simon Cowell who gave that to her. And getting raves from Simon Cowell is no easy feat. But A Cowgirl Song is a movie that I may review for you. Admittedly, it's not especially high on my list because it's a children's film and presumably a made-for-TV movie, but I might be impressed with it. As I said, I don't rule any genres out. As a matter of fact, as a film critic and as a film lover, I don't have any favorite genres. Just show me a good movie. It doesn't matter what genre it falls into. If the acting is good and the story takes me, I'm on board. So who knows? Maybe a cowgirl song might impress me, but I'll let you know maybe on a future episode, but I'm not exactly guaranteeing that either. But the the Netflix original films that are coming out, there are actually a ton that are from foreigners, but there's one that is an American film, and I'm going to highlight that since I have time. The movie is called Me Time, and this is a comedy action film that stars Mark Wahlberg and Kevin Hart, who I don't believe have teamed up before, even though they've been in similar movies. But this movie follows a dad who finds time for himself for the first time in years while his wife and kids are away. But he he reconnects with his friend for a wild weekend. So this seems like a typical Kevin Hart comedy action film, but hopefully it's better than The Man from Toronto. John Hamburg wrote the screenplay for this and directed the film. And John Hamburg has directed uh, several movies before, a lot of comedies, including Why Him, starring Brian Cranston and James Franco, which wasn't that great. He directed I Love You, Man, starring Paul Rudd and Jason Segel, which was a much better movie. But I will see Me Time, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, and I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, This is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.